I think all systems of medicine have incredible strengths and all have limitations. And that when we recognize what our own limitations are, it would be so much easier to work together. And I really pray that that's the way that we're moving. It, it seems that we are, things are changing a lot. And um, I look forward to the day when it's, it's all working together. And that in the US you'll find Chinese practitioners with a Western doctor surgeon next door in the same building. And Ayurvedic practice. And an Ayurvedic. And, and osteopathy. All of us. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome or welcome back to the show where usually, traditionally, typically, I go deep and heady and long form with some of the most intriguing thought leaders and positive paradigm-breaking change makers all across the globe. Uh, today, it's going to be a little bit different, and I'm going to explain the hows and whys of it in a second, but first... We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And 
With that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. All right, so as I inferred earlier, this is a special midweek episode of the podcast. It's a panel discussion that we hosted during our most recent retreat in Italy, Plant Power Italia. We decided to record it, and I thought it would make for a really interesting podcast episode because it's just a fascinating uh, discussion. So it's a little bit different than what I usually do here on the podcast, but I think you guys are going to be uh, intrigued by it, and I think there is a lot to mine here and certainly a lot of information from which to learn and expand. So essentially, it's a three-person panel that includes our longtime friend, Angela Baumel-Nicholas, who is a highly skilled physiotherapist and osteopath practicing in southern Germany. Uh, secondly, our friend Jennifer Ayers, who is an extremely talented and incredibly empathetic Ayurvedic health practitioner uh, and teacher. She has been certified by the internationally known Ayurvedic doctor, writer, and teacher, Dr. Vasant Laud. They collaborate and work together. Uh, in the world of Ayurveda, uh, Dr. Laud is like the dude. He's like the guy. Uh, and thirdly, our friend Colin Houdon, who is another longtime friend, uh, as well as a physician of acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine, uh, as well as the founder and owner of Living Tea, livingtea.net, which is a company you probably heard me mention on the podcast many times. Uh, essentially, Colin imports some of the finest living teas uh, from Taiwan and China and brings them to the United States. It's just phenomenal tea. So Colin is a wealth of information. Uh, if you recall my podcast with Tea Master Wuda, then you likely recall Colin's name uh, being mentioned as they are collaborators. It's uh, through Colin that we were able to meet Wuda. And so that's a little bit of the history there. Anyway, this is a super interesting roundtable uh, discussion. We cover topics like Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and acupuncture and osteopathy, various additional healing modalities, and essentially the power that we all have to exert more control over our health and our well-being. So that's all I'm going to say. I don't want to say too much more about this episode. I'll just let you guys tap into it. I'll leave it at that. And I hope you guys find it informative and enjoyable. As a final note, 
Uh, the audio on this is uh, a little rough, <laughs> at times very rough. Uh, so I apologize for that in advance. We didn't exactly have the best equipment and mics with us when we were in Italy. We weren't sure we were going to record it. It was kind of a last minute decision and we were jerry-rigging it the best that we could. So you're just going to have to bear with it uh, and understand that, uh, you know, not always perfect with the audio. But that being said, I thought there was uh, enough here uh, of on the positive end of things to make it worth sharing with you. So that being said, and without any further ado, please enjoy this panel discussion on holistic health and healing. Welcome to our, what day is it today? Wednesday? Wednesday. How many people feel like you've been here a month? <laughs> That's good. Isn't it strange? It does. It feels like time is so stretched. I feel I've known all of you guys for my whole life. We've known each other three days. It's pretty cool. So anyway, uh, many of you guys know these incredible people that are up here uh, on the couch, on the therapist couch. Um, Jennifer, Colin, and Angela, um, they are all extremely developed uh, beings. They are all gifted immensely. And of everyone on the planet that we know, uh, they were the very, very uh, best people that we could think of uh, to get to come on the trip. So we're really, really honored and grateful that you guys said yes and that you came. So thank you so much. You add so much to our experience here. And um, we really wanted to honor them and, and take time to kind of feature the work that each of them do because it's a very, very important part, I think, of being on this wellness journey of transformation. We can't always do it on our own. There's not everything that you can solve with eating a plant-based diet. It's a lot more complicated than that. And we all need um, to be familiar with different healing modalities and uh, practitioners and people that can help us as we go through different uh, periods of our life. So anyway, uh, thanks for coming, you guys, and you're on. Check, 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 check. Before I talk about the distractions and evils of modern technology, I just got to send a text here. So one second. <laughs> Um, so we discussed a little bit about what we wanted to talk about as a group because uh, while all three of us have experience and background in different types of holistic medicine, um, there's, there are different systems, there are different approaches to medicine, uh, but they all have underlying principles that are similar. and. One way that we thought would be uh, helpful or beneficial to all of you is to give a broad context or paint a broad stroke picture of uh, some ideas about health and ideas of what disease is or may or may not be, uh, and to talk about the idea of what it means to be healthy in a, in a general schema, and then uh, to get more granular and actually bring that down to the point of what it means to practice to practice medicine uh, as practitioners of holistic medicine and what that actually looks like. So, <clears throat> so bear with us. We're going to kind of cover a lot of ground from a. Still on. We're going to cover a lot of ground from a very broad uh, context down to a, a more um, focused context. So I. 
spent the last six years of uh, seven years of education unlearning linear learning, uh, which was a lifetime of learning. So, and I'm talking about the very broad general context of health. Uh, so if you leave what I have to say when I pass the mic on to Jennifer more confused than I've achieved my aim. Um, and I kind of, I'm saying that jokingly, but I also mean it quite seriously because we in Western culture especially have this idea that uh, clarity, you know, you always, I've got clarity on the matter or I'm clear. Um, that once you've arrived at clarity, now you've got your life figured out. You know, you have your aim and your goals and, you know, there's this movement of hacking your life, making things more efficient, more uh, simplified, and an emphasis on uh, this linear data-driven efficiency. The problem with uh, clarity is that oftentimes that's just a concept we have in our heads. And some traditions, I'll say spiritual traditions, we'll say traditions that uh, wish to live with skill and wisdom, they see clarity actually as, a, um, as a, an obstacle in one's growth because as soon as one arrives at this belief, oh, I understand this thing or I have knowledge, I'm clear about it, you've cut yourself off from the question of it. So if you follow me for a moment on that, as soon as I believe I understand something, I'm no longer in a, in a wide, receptive uh, way of relating to it. I've sort of relegated it to that part of my life that, oh yeah, I got that, I understand that. And we tend to do that so often, you know, even at the simplest level with our, with our partner, with loved ones, oh, I know this person. And you know, and I've caught myself at times in the last year even where I make eye contact with somebody or I stop for a minute and I see them and I realize I haven't actually looked at them or taken them in as a, as a living being, as a growing, evolving human being because I'm familiar with them. I, get, I know them. I get them. And we go through so much of life in this sort of mechanical way that, um, that clear, this, this idea of clarity can actually be a real obstacle. And that's very relevant to health in ways that will come up, I think, throughout this talk. So again, if you are more confused by what I've said and haven't been able to follow me by the end of whatever I'd like to share, then um, I've achieved something good, I think. Um, so that brings me to my first point, which is that um, I know I found myself throughout some of the talks in, in the first couple of days of this week, um, with this thought of, oh, when this is done, I can't wait to X. Or when I start, once we leave here and we arrive at this next place we're going, oh, I can't wait to incorporate that thing or to start doing this thing or to make this change or this shift in my life. And the th that it's not to say that goals aren't a good thing, but the problem with it is that this, what you're living right now in this room, in this moment, is your life. This is not a dress rehearsal. We are here living our lives in this moment. And we spend so much of our time, humanity, lost in thought. We spend so much of our lives living in the future or the past and carrying the past around with us as a burden or 
uh, projecting out into the future our desires or aversions or anticipating what may or may not happen in the future. And we spend very little time uh, really live, actually living our lives. And that's a practice that uh, takes a lifetime, I think, of commitment to really develop. You know, we hear these terms mindfulness or presence. Uh, I would say those are synonymous with consciousness and love. All of those are the same thing. And that's a very important and central aspect of this idea of health. Because if you ask yourself the question, well, what is, what is health? Or what does it mean to live a healthy life? A more fundamental question that has to be asked first is, what is it to live a life? And it is definitely not a life to spend your entire time thinking about something that has nothing to do with this present moment, with the living reality of where we are here and now. Uh, but we often spend a lot of our life doing that. And if you don't believe me, then you can try and give yourself some task or something you want to remember to do throughout the course of the day. Uh, like maybe when you walk in and out of doorways to remember yourself, to feel your feet on the ground or feel the handle in your hand and make that commitment or something like that, like an alarm clock. And then notice that throughout the course of the day, maybe multiple days will pass and you don't do it one time. And what that shows you is that we aren't really here for, for most of our lives. We're not really living our lives. We're not present to it, which that will open up a whole lot of questions like, well, then who is or what am I doing with all this time in this space? So um, some of the broad spectrum things that I just want to touch on and then um, I'll pass the mic. <clears throat> One of them is that there's a fundamental misunderstanding that humans have that we exist independent of life itself. That we think that we are separate, uh, that we have our own agency and that we're existing separate from life itself, which is a real fundamental misunderstanding of, of right relationship. And I think if you look at, at the reality that we find ourselves in, you know, we have nature over here as one camp, and then we have society over here as another camp, and we have economy in another place, and culture in another place. And we treat those all as independent things. And in modern life, I think we've created a religion out of, uh, out of money, out of economy. And if economy is a religion, then ultimately bankers are the priests who are telling people what to worship and what's important to them. And things get disproportionately uh, disconnected. So a lot of people live and fundamentally prioritize uh, material reality and their relationship to stuff and their identification with stuff as what's most important. And that is the beginning of ill health. And the reason being that a right orientation or a right system puts nature with a capital N as the largest, uh, we'll say, ecosystem within which society exists. And within society, we have culture. And within culture, we have an economy. And that nested system, the smaller aspects of the system should feed the larger aspects of the system or exist in right relationship to it because that would be a healthy society. But 
unfortunately, we have this disproportionately uh, misaligned relationship to these things. And I say that, I share that, because I think that, and this is part of practicing holistic medicine, we can't understand our own health or what it means to be healthy without understanding the context of their lives. And that's a lot of what biomedical science in, in modern Western medicine does. A person comes in, they have a list of symptoms, and you look at their labs and their blood work and their radiological reports, and then treat some symptoms and send them on their way. You know, and the average doctor, I think, spends uh, 15 seconds or 20 seconds with a patient and reads some things off a piece of paper, generally speaking, and prescribes some drugs, uh, and it's either drug therapy or surgery, those are your options, and then sends them on their way. And I don't know about most of you, but my experience going to a hospital is usually not one where I feel seen as a human being, much less taken in the context of my, the entirety of my life. I feel more like some symptoms on a piece of paper and um, not really, my, my health as a whole does not feel addressed or considered. And <clears throat> I don't think we can understand a person outside of the context of their lives. So if you see a person comes to you and they have some health problems and you don't take into consideration, are you happy with your work? Are you happy in your relationships? Do you feel, feel fulfilled in your sense of purpose? Uh, is, are you content in the life you're living? Are you moving in a, in a direction that you feel inspired by? And they say no to all those questions. And they say, but I've got this, you know, di these digestive issues. And that definitely has nothing to do with any of those other things. Even though I'm profoundly unhappy, I'm worried a lot. I haven't had sex in five years. And I uh, eat a poor diet. You know, if a person comes to you with all those issues, but then says my digestive issues have nothing to do with any of that, then in all likelihood, they're probably misunderstanding what's actually going on. Another way of thinking about this relationship between the context of a person's life and the relationship between the mind and the body and the emotions and the spirit is that anybody who's had a cold or a flu or some minor illness, did you sit in like perfect equanimity and say, no, it's just this body that's not feeling well, I feel great otherwise. You know, there's a, a profound interrelationship, interconnectedness between these things. And that's in the context of an individual. As a species, as a society, you know, if you take a breath right now, where did that breath come from? You know, that it came from the trees. Where did the trees come from? You can't understand the trees independent of an extraordinarily complex root system with microbes and fungi and mycelium and sunshine, birdsong, the stars, the cosmos, the wind, the seasons. All of this is feeding a living system. And all of that has to work in a profound harmony just for you to take that one breath. And you know, we also talk about a plant-powered diet or something, or, or eating a whole foods uh, diet. Every thought that every person's having in this room is being fueled by plant energy. This is something that one of my teachers talks a lot about. Um, even if somebody's eating meat, the, that's still running on plant energy because those animals are, are plant-driven. 
you know, the clothes that we are wearing, the wood that's on this floor, all the material to make the lights in the walls, everything that society is producing, everything that we're surrounded by, everything that supports us fundamentally is coming out of nature. And that's what I mean by it being a nested system. But most people have lost a feeling of connection to that. And without a feeling connection of our fundamental uh, need for and relationship to nature, uh, we're living in a state of disharmony. And that is at the root and the core, I think, of, of ill health and of um, disharmony for individuals and for people as a whole. And I'll say the last thing I will say is that I think it's less important to relate to the, maybe the food we're eating or the things we're doing as, you know, or to food, we'll say, as these bioavailable fuel packets that we need to run our next marathon or, you know, to, to stay healthy or stay fit. Because by reducing food to, to stuff that fuels these machines that we're inside of, uh, it is not allowing us to take this fundamental and necessary step of the feeling of connection and relationship to nature, which is what should come with the, with the consumption of food, is an awareness of, of uh, the connection to nature. And that's one of the reasons that um, tea is such an important vehicle and something that I work with, because you're literally drinking teas, or you're literally drinking trees, and you're also not distracted by, with food, there's a lot of uh, other things that happen, like craving and uh, delicious flavors, titillating flavors and things that it's easy to get distracted in the act of eating. Um, whereas with tea, it's about clearing a lot of that out of the way and it's hard to dismiss the fact that you're literally just sitting there drinking trees. Uh, and so that connection of feeling, the feeling connection to nature is, is experienced. You know, if you ask somebody to... Um, describe how they connect, we'll say connect to nature. They wouldn't say, well, I think intensely about it. Or, you know, if you were to walk into a forest and think intensely about it, it would turn into a report about birds. Or if you look at a mountain and you think about it, it becomes something to mine or to conquer or to climb. But this process of incessant thinking uh, and analyzing and critically observing does not allow you to connect. The way we connect with things is through a fee, an embodied feeling relationship to it. And modern society doesn't really put much emphasis or appreciation on this feeling connection of things. Can we sense one another? Uh, can we feel our connection to life itself? And recognize that we're, we're immersed in it. We're part of something much bigger than us. Um, thinking is very good at breaking things down into their component parts, but it certainly doesn't help us connect with something much larger than us. And um, so with that, you can probably imagine what I would suggest we all spend more time doing. Um, I'm gonna pass the mic for now, otherwise I'll keep talking for another 20 minutes. <laughs> wow. Thanks, Colin. Good morning, everybody. I think I'm going to feel for a sec.
So I, I thought part of our giving a little context for who we are and our practices, uh, maybe Colin can go back and say a little bit about his background. But I, um, I started my, my journey early on and started practicing Ayurveda before I knew the word for it. I was an environmental major and had this, I felt like I'm a spiritual environmentalist. I just love everything. So what do I do with that? And I started an education and then I also was doing healing work, massage therapy, energy work. And I was really discouraged that I had two career paths when to me it was one thing. So it's following in line with what Colin was just saying about how much we compartmentalize our lives and there's these separations that are really false, that are really uncomfortable if we're feeling. So for me, this connection, my relationship to my, the nat natural world, which is my body, which is every moment, which is everything, where everything comes from, and my relationship to other people, and my relationship to my culture, and my relationship to God, all add up to, am I healthy or not? And if I'm healthy and really aligned, then all the decisions I make are benefiting those around me, including the environment. So why two career paths? That makes no sense. And I had my own health struggles, where I was like, my digestion's not working well, what's going on? So I started researching, and I found a book on Ayurveda. <clears throat> and it was by Dr. Vasant Ladd, who ended up being my teacher and now my boss. And I thought, oh, I found it. Oh, and early on in my life, people say, like, what are you going to do with your life? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. But I think I don't know the name of what I'm going to be doing. And when I read that book, I'm like, I found the name. It's called Ayurveda. And I've been practicing it all along. And the great thing about Ayurveda is that it was never created, and it, it will always exist and always has existed. It is only these rhythms that can be described. And if you take time, if you take a breath, if you feel your body, you have access to this information. It's not some esoteric really hard to understand thing. But when you try to articulate how does everything work, it becomes really heady really fast. It gets compli complicated. And so at learning Ayurveda, there can be lots and lots of rules and this and that. But the baseline is forget the rules. If you feel what's true to you and it brings you closer to balance, it brings you closer to who you really are, and there are no side effects, that's called Ayurveda. But that's also called Chinese medicine. That's also called osteopathy. That's also, this is the pathway to health. So, yeah, I did a bunch of studies and became a practitioner and also a teacher. Um, and I worked for a Swami and learned how to cook for him. And that was a great honor because food is so important, as everyone in this room knows, for well-being. Food actually creates the quality of our mind. The quality of our food creates the quality of our minds. And we, so mind actually is coming from two directions in our philosophy. One is that in the beginning we're just energy that we could call a soul. And that soul had this desire to have an experience, to know self. So it started to 
crystallized, it became a little more dense, and that became a mind. And that mind became a little more dense and crystallized into a physical body. So the body is crystallized mind. So if we're going to have a beautiful, well-operating body, we need to start with the mind. Sometimes that seems a little out there. Like, no, the mind is contained inside the body. But we're saying, no, the body is created, it's crystallized mind. And that soul still wants to have an experience. That experience is flow. I see all of us as a, as a river. Unique, our banks are completely unique. Maybe have a few landmarks that you'll see throughout your life, but the flow is always flowing and it's always a different river. But yours is unique. But it's flowing and eventually joining with the ocean and eventually evaporating and you become a cloud. And we're, it's all one thing. We are one flow, which is nature. So anyway, sorry, I wasn't supposed to get out there philosophically. <laughs> so let's bring it down more into like physical being. What do we do? Some like practical things. What do we need to talk about with food, with the physical body in this context of there is just one big flow. The um, concept in Ayurveda that's most central to food is digestion, and we call it Agni. Agni is the fire of digestion. It is all about transformation. Any part of the process in the body that is changing one thing from un to another, like uh, food into energy, or thought into understanding, is governed by this thing called Agni. So there's Agni everywhere, but the biggest fire, let's say it looks like a little campfire, is in is in the belly, is in the stomach and the small intestines. And we even say that taste doesn't come from food. It comes from the quality of your agni. You're like, what? But if you're not feeling well and you're not, you're not, you don't have an appetite, food doesn't taste good. It's really coming from your ability to transform one thing into another that allows you to taste it and allows you to then um, take it in in other ways to utilize it the most, to have energy, to have nutrition, to have building blocks for the physical body. So this quality of Agni is the most important thing in terms of digesting food, in terms of eating food. So we have the quality of the food that we have done a lot of focus on, but before we decide what we're going to eat, we want to make sure that this digestive fire is working properly. And how do, we, how do we do that? How do we care for our Agni? First of all, it knows what to do, right? This formation, this crystallization of mind, wanted to have a body, wanted to have an experience of life, so it knows what to do. The most important thing we need to do is make sure our minds don't get in the way. The flow will happen without us if we could just stop from getting in the way. And what I mean by getting in the way is that we tend to override our bodies a lot. We override the body by saying, oh, you're tired? Hold on a second, I just want to finish this thing. We override the fact that our body needs rest. The body has its own intelligence, and that intelligence is coming from Agni. 
So Agni is a, is a very big term that's all about transforming anything to anything, much more than just digesting food. But <clears throat> the digesting of food is only possible if we're taking care of Agni in all ways. Okay, so some ways that we can misuse our Agni is by overeating, eating too many complicated things, um, eating the wrong types of food for our body type or for the season. So let's say it's cold and rainy out and we're feeling a little under the weather. Eating ice cream is probably not the best idea. It's cold, it's hot, it's heavy and it's wet and it's will put out that fire. It's like putting a big damp blanket on top of a fire. Puts it out. Once it's out, it's not gonna do its job. And anything else that we put on, on top of it will turn into a residue called ama toxins, like putrefaction, fermentation, and can cause all kinds of symptoms. So right then it's like, oh wait, then I need to know all the rules. Tell me all the rules. And I'm like, okay, hold on. There's no way that I'm going to teach you Ayurveda in one 10-minute session. But if you follow what feels right to you, you probably already know. Erase probably. You already know. Everyone that comes to me, well, usually one or maybe many things, they'll say, I know I shouldn't, but. <laughs> so luckily, my job is really easy. All I need to do is like, remember that thing you know isn't good for you? What do you want to do about that? <laughs> I'm a mirror. But just to give your mind a little more of that, you know, food to chew on about the rules, okay. So we don't want to do um, the overeating, the complex foods, the wrong foods for the season, for our body type. Also, the quality of our attention, our emotional state when we're eating completely affects our agni. And we can look at science for this. Like, there's the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. One is for rest and digest, the other is for fight and flight. So when you're ch running from a bear that's chasing you, it's probably not the time to be digesting. The body knows the difference. It shunts all the blood to the limbs and to the brain in order to get out of a situation, right? That means there's none left over for the stomach and those systems and the hydrochloric acid and the enzymes are just not available at that time. But that means our body doesn't know the difference between being chased by a bear and having a deadline. And that's when we're ramped all the time and we don't know how to shut that down, we don't have a, the ability to digest. And it doesn't matter what quality of food we're putting in it, we're creating toxins. So coming to the table to be like, I'm sitting, I'm not going to be eating in my car or while I'm on the run or standing in the kitchen because I have 10 seconds. It's important to have a seated, relaxed, take a breath, and be present with the food for your digestion, for the nervous system to know that it's time and that it be even able to. So the quality of your, your state of emotions <clears throat> and your quality of attention, equally important. So we can overwhelm and misuse our Agni in so many different ways, but let's say, um, the, there's also another possibility of your Agni just coming in with it not being as strong. It's a genetic thing. There are ways that you can strengthen that by right practice. 
But in general, your Agni knows what to do. And if we just get out of the way of doing the wrong things, it's going to work. So in terms of quality of food, we're really, I know all of us have done a lot of work, a lot of intention, a lot of, so I don't even feel like I need to go into that so much. But of course, in Ayurveda, we talk about organic, local, seasonal foods, whole as much as possible. The more whole, the more nutrition, um, the more connection to this flow, which is everything, which is nature, is available to us. We call it prana, the energy of the food. We want the food to be as alive as possible. In Ayurveda, we also talk about raw versus cooked, and it totally depends on who you are. There's no one thing that's good for all people because we're completely unique. And if you have a lot of fire in your digestion, then raw is totally an availability for you because it takes a lot to break down a raw substance in order to unlock the nutrition that's inside of it. If you don't have really strong digestion, a lot of fire, then it's gonna take some pre-cooking in order to unlock the availability of those nutrients. So for a person with a lot of wind in their system, meaning that they're dry, they're thin, they're really active, they might have a more delicate digestion, they're gonna need more cooked foods. So all these rules I'm not gonna go into right now about who for what, but you know, you know what works for you. So it's like, don't listen to any trend, don't listen to anyone telling you what to do, feel your body, and if you're not sure, experiment. For most people, you know about 30% raw can work for them, but it also depends on the season. In the summer, there's so much more fire outside in our natural environment, that means that there's more fire available inside of us. One of the, Another foundation of, of Ayurveda is that we talk about the attributes, the, the qualities, that all of these, we have 20 that we talk about, hot and cold and light and rough and slimy and dense, they all exist in nature. This is all the things that make up a being and all of our uh, physical reality. Whatever qualities like this are on our outside, we will imbibe and it will become our inside. So when it's hot out, we start to get more inflammation, which is a type of heat in our body. When it's cold out, we'll start to imbibe cold quality in us and that will cause symptoms like constipation and gas. It's an interesting, we are actually imbibing the qualities of our external environment and making them internal. The internal ones become external, the external ones, we are all one thing. There's no way to separate it out. But we really see that combination, that, that um, influence with the seasons. And that in the hot season, we don't want to have hot spicy foods because we already have too much hot in us. So it was a good time to have cooling foods like coconut, cucumber, those types of things, leafy greens. It's also, since there's so much heat available, it's a better time to eat raw. In the winter, heavy, cold, dark. We want some lightness, some heat, some spiciness. So having spicier food in the winter is a good thing to keep your immunity up. In the fall, fall right now, we're having some transition from heat to cold. Anytime there's transition, it can disturb the move movements in the body and vata, which is the wind part of us, gets disturbed and we need to make sure that we have stability. We need some regular schedule. 
We need to go to bed at a good time, get up at a right time, have a, our daily schedule of timing is important for our digestion to be working properly. It's a good time to go into root vegetables because it's a time that's easy to feel ungrounded, especially when it's windy outside, we can feel unsettled inside. So that's a way that wind will show up in our overactive mind, insomnia. So that's a good time to do warm, soupy soups and stews and root vegetables for grounding. I'm trying to go gauge like, okay, details and not details. And like, it's probably about time for me anyway. Um, quickly, the qualities of um, our mind are created by the quality of the food that we're eating. And that's why fresh, whole foods are going to give us the most clarity and the most um, close alignment with our true nature. When we have processed foods, they get further away from what's real. We get confused, we get disturbed, we get toxins that lead to heaviness, depression, or overly active mind, restlessness. We have words for that. It's Thomas is heavy, Rajasic is overactive, restless, and sattvic means clear, pure mind. And it, Completely, those qualities are created by what we're eating and how we're taking things in through our senses. So, what? <laughs> what's the term for that? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. <laughs> so, the preparation of our food is the last thing that I'll be touching on is that just as important as the quality of the food and the quality of our agni is the preparation of our food because the love that we put into it changes everything and how it's creating our minds. So I don't know about you, but I can totally tell if I'm in a restaurant, if somebody prepared this and they're angry, I'm like somebody does not like their job back there and I can't eat it. I get an upset stomach. I feel agitated later if I eat that food. And even if you're not feeling those things, not as sensitive, it's happening. And the more that you're in touch with the whole process of where does your food come from? How is it being prepared? Where, where, how much transportation was involved? All of these things add up to how it will create your mind. So highly recommend, have a garden. Know where your food comes from. Cook it yourself and think about who's going to be eating this food and how much you love them while you're cooking it. It changes everything. Okay, so any, any suffering that's in our body or mind is not punishment. Sometimes it's confusing when we're suffering and feeling victimized by this body of ours. It's like, why aren't you behaving? It's not a punishment. It's communication, it's feedback. And it's saying, hold up, you're not in the flow of your river. That's all it's saying. And so how do we get back in that flow when we're not? 
presence, presence, presence. We, we say it over and over. And follow your desire. If you have any little upwelling of like, it would be nice, feed that. Desire is the way into the soul's, the soul's manifesting its purpose. Follow desire. So I hope you all know what I'm talking about and like not the compulsive, like needy, but the true feeling of like, I just really want this thing. Now I'm like, oh no, there are all those pits of minds that are like, but progress. <laughs> no, it's the quiet one, the quiet one that's not attached to ego that I'm talking about, that desire. You're with me. You know. So. Thanks. I'm going to hand it over to Angela. So, um, I could. Do you have a needle <laughs> to bring down my heart rate? It's going to take about five minutes. So, <laughs> I'm going to calm down. I'm not, yeah, it's difficult for me to, to speak uh, with a lot of people. I'm kind of a one-to-one -one person, this is where I work best, but um, it takes about five minutes and then I'm into it, I'm going to calm down. Um, so um, there, it's, yeah, it kind of more easy for me now to talk a little about my work. I don't, there's a lot of things in osteopathy, they are not in that they are they are not in osteopathy, but in Ayurvedic and and Chinese medicine. So there is nothing about food for me to talk, or something like that. I do really just work in my hands. It's certainly the most touchy kind of holistic medicine, and um, I really would love to dialogue with you just to answer questions because this is what I'm certainly best at. I've got kind of difficulties to to give answers for questions that hadn't been asked. You know what I mean? So because I don't know where to start, where to where to begin, how to explain. But there were already the last days a lot of questions from you about what am I doing? What is this special kind of osteopathy? So gives me a kind of um, red line to follow because I hope to answer these kind of question, questions. And um, so how did I come to osteopathy? I was a physiotherapist for, first and I worked for, yeah, it's 30 years ago I started and I had my clinic with people working for me and I totally always was, was into body work, working with people. I, um, I really appreciated and had a really, really good time. But immediately or really fast I came to a point of dissatisfaction of my work because certainly, I, I don't know, I, maybe I was born like that. It was that. For me it was always or always out of question that there is a that there is a division possible between body mind spirit soul whatever you know it was totally i mean clear for me that that when somebody said okay i'm stressed out or 
I don't know, my relationship is not good, or I hurt myself, I had a trauma, I had an operation, or whatever, that this comes to a to point to say, yeah, yeah, this is all you, and this is all about you, so why am I just treating this muscle, or why am I just treating this articulation because it hurts, I treat this back because I hurt, but what if this back is hurting because? It's not hurting because there is a, a blockade or some, but because you are carrying something or whatever. So it, I came to this point and seeing people coming back, always happy when leaving the, the treatment, but coming back, always having the same problems, always having the same issues. And then I had the chance to meet, um, I just have to take a sip of water, it's going to pass. So then, at this time with my clinic, I was attached to a studio, so I had a lot of, I had to give lessons, and yoga lessons and spinning lessons, and I did a lot of things. And then there was a woman, she was working as the, at the reception, and I was asking what she was doing. She said, yeah, she's earning money to, to make her osteopathy studies. And she just, and I asked her, so what is this and what is the difference? And then she came up with this uh, holistic picture of, um, yeah, that they're not just treating the skeletal system, but they're also looking at the organs, they're looking at their central nervous system, and there are different techniques and ways to, way to go. So the treatment of the central nervous system is what maybe some of you know as the cranial sacral treatment. This is the part of osteopathy that treats the central nervous system. And then there is the treatment of the organic system and the skeletal system, like, you know, there's part of uh, chiropractic or assetment or fascia treatment or whatever. The, what you do with the black roll, for example, you do it in, with your hands in osteopathy. And um, I said, okay, this is my thing, I have to go into it. So I started this five-year five studies, um, all the time working in my clinic besides, so this was a kind of real tough time. And um, this was beautiful, and I had the chance to, to get in touch with um, the professor who teaches the cranial sacral treatments. She kind of, uh, I, I, my, my partner, when we, was, we were training, she, she had a question. And so the teacher came and she tried to, and she said, yeah, please, could you have a look? I'm not sure if this is the problem. And she took my head and I was lying there and she said, yeah, why doesn't she really touches me? You know, really get in contact, you know, with the structure. And I was kind of, you know, reaching out, so why, why won't you touch me? And, um, but then I said, okay, now she don't want to touch me, so I just, and then I started to really relax into the situation and was completely forgetting about her and because anyway, I didn't really feel her hands. And, and then I had the experience of what we call an automatic shifting. It's a kind of, you know, you, there's a, kind of thing going on and was, yeah, okay, I, you know, like you do it sometimes like this. And this just came up with me lying on the table and said, what, what was that? And I turned around and said, what are you doing? And she said, nothing. <laughs> said, okay. So she said, it's you. 
you just adjusted yourself. And um, I say, so this is osteopathy? She said, yes, but this, she said that she started the biodynamic series, what we call, and it's a seven year postgraduate, postgraduate thing. Now they, um, I'm in my sixth year now, and now they just making it a nine year thing. <laughs> I'm really happy about that because um, I really don't know what I'm going to do the day I'm not mentored or lectured anymore. So I hope that when I'm at my ninth year, they're going to say, oh, just, we're doing this for another 20 years. Uh, this would be really great. Um, so, um, and then I said, and when I, when I finished my, my studies, I immediately uh, applied for a, for a a spot in this uh, biodynamic series that I'm doing with Dr. Tom Shaver, and he's coming. He's teaching all over the world, and I do it in in, in Austria, because um, um, yeah. So I have to go to Austria all the time to go there, and um, so this is what I'm doing right now. I'm totally. I don't do any chiropractic anymore. It never ever was my thing, because it's manipulation and this was never in my system I, I don't want to manipulate I don't want to be manipulated so it was just not in my in my being it's totally good that this exists and that the possibility exists that when you kind of are there and say okay please help me so and but if somebody calls in my office and said oh, I have to come to see you to to make an adjustment I say don't please go and see somebody else it's not that I don't want to help you but but it's just not my thing to go into this situation. And so I started these, um, the biodynamic studies, and there, yeah, I maybe quote what uh, Dr. James Chalice said, biodynamic begins with awareness of wholeness. And so this totally brings and everything together and back again. And um, just to, to be aware that you can't split anything in nature into pieces. If, if you watch it, and I mean, you would never think about it, yeah? And you, if you go and want to help somebody, you, you just, I think you're just not allowed to split them up. And um, so what it means is to, to perceive, really in treatment, to perceive the whole and let what we call the breath of life, so what maybe it's called prana, what, I don't know, Andrew Taylor still, the, the father of osteopathy, he said, 1875, he just said it's the breath of God. I mean, the, he really had no problem with saying things like that. You can't say that today to people, so, um, so it's a kind of a compromise to say it's the breath of life, and it's just our completely total connection to to everything and um, and then you just try to be in service of this totally perfect system and to 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 help the whole to come back to balance and without compromising the wholeness of this person so yeah, this sounds really good, I know. So how, how do you do that? And it's, you know, when you, when you come to, the, to, to touch a body, it's just to be the listener. It, I, 
touch somebody and I immediately start to listen. And just to be transparent, to not, yeah, compromise anything. And um, maybe if to make up a picture, um, I also, in, in parallel, I started to um, a speci specialization for pediatric treatment. So I'm, I'm treating a lot of babies. And, and this is, I mean, this is certainly the best way to really learn what biodynamics or holistic treatment is all about. Because when you, I, I made, I kind of made up this picture, you know, when I treat somebody, it's like if you have a pot, a pot of hot soup, and there is carrots and everything, and when you touch uh, an adult person, you go and go near the pot. And then you just try to sense and try to get as transparent as to really get into the soup, in touch with the soup. Yeah? So that you say, okay, this is the liquid, these are the hard pieces, so okay, just watch this. If you touch a baby, you never, never ever could touch a baby like you touch an adult. You always could treat an adult as a baby. And this is certainly the best kind of treatment. This is biodynamics. Because this is in respect of the embryo, of the, re of the real blueprint of you, of your re real shape. And this is always in your whole life accessible. It's, it's, in your, it's in you, this embryo. And this is perfection. And um, if you touch a baby, you're directly, first you take the mixer, and there are no pieces anymore. There is this whole total, total homogeneous thing, and then you really go into it, with your hands, into the soup. This is touching a baby. When you touch a baby, you're in the soup. And this is why you have to be really, really careful when you touch babies or when you treat babies, because there isn't this safety pot around you know, with an adult, with his mind, his ego, and everything. You can, this is a protection for an adult. In, in, in treatment. Adult has the possibility to say, no, you just don't go there. I just don't talk to you. I just don't show. A baby doesn't have the possibility. A baby always shows everything. And so this is why you, you have really ha have to have this picture to get into the soup and just stay there and then feel outside your head, inside your hand and just this kind of pot at one moment just totally disappears. And then you totally working kind of, yeah, till the horizon. So this is mostly what it is about. It's, and in, in biodynamics, it's really, really important, this, this connection to embryology. There is um, a real well-known uh, embryologist, Blechschmidt, he was German, and he, a long time ago, he did a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of re research about the question, what is this power behind the growth and the development of an embryo? I mean, if the embryo develops and he takes, you know, all these layers are get formed into a liver and into a stomach, this is genetics. They know what to do and they know I'm going to be a liver and I don't know what I have to do. This is totally genetics, this we have, this we get. But what is the energy that makes it happen? That 
that says, yeah, it's now it's the 21st day, now this has to happen. It's the 36th day, now this has to happen. Nobody ever found out what it is. And just kind of the classical science, I don't know if they kind of ignore it, <laughs> that we still don't know. And, and they say, no, 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 breath of life and things like that. Yeah, but just why don't give it a name? It's just a name, yeah, for something we can't explain. And so this uh, this uh, uh, searcher, which is really, I mean, if, uh, it's 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 real tough stuff, but but it's really 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 inter interesting to to get into this or to read about this. And and he was doing the same research as, as Sutherland, the, one of the big fathers of, of osteopathy. He was doing the same research at the same, and they didn't they didn't know of each other. It was just after that osteopath discovered that more or less at the same time they were looking for answers in the same kind of field. And so this is why the embryology is really, really important to know and to yeah, kind of uh, respect that as a fact, that this shape, this perfect shape is still in you and is, it's accessible, that just we're very often so divided and Parted and apart, and what um, uh, what you said about before to be um, disconnected from nature is that we are not just disconnected from nature, but also disconnected from our our embryo, from our perfect shape, and so this is what we really want to look about, and this is why the treatment is just about to get you in this neutral resting state where there is totally melting, where this soup is going to lose structure, hard pieces and everything, where there is a kind of homogeneity, synchronicity of all, yeah, of all, all forces, so that your potency, capital P, uh, could do all the work for you. And I know certainly the, this brings up a lot of questions, so this maybe I just stop here, but I, I wanted to, because this is really, really important. I think it's, it really helps to, to think it through, this embryo idea. <laughs> and um, I just wanted to yeah, quote like uh, Dr. Chalice, he put it, because I'm, I, I surely can't put it as well in English words as he did, he said, uh, an embryo function as a whole, its integrity is universal within itself. This display of unity and individual function remains at the core of each of us. Our cultural senses are aware of it, but are, are not aware of it, but are completely conscious of our whole pre-genetic, pre-gender role in recognizing the press of life as the most dominant feature of our century landscape. We are tracking our own divinity as we begin to sense health. I couldn't have said better, <laughs> sure. So, yeah, this is a little about what, what I do. <laughs> I try, I, what I try to do. Well, can you say a little bit about 
That uh, did you all hear the question? Um, she asked, "Can you say a little bit about Chinese medicine and what that's all about?" Um, so the first Chinese medical text is uh, called the Yellow Emperor's Classic, and it was written by a guy um, named Huang Di Neijing from, and it was written in 2737 BC. So Chinese medicines, and w when that was written, it's incredibly um, detailed and is evidence of a fully developed, extraordinarily complex, complete, comprehensive medical system, which means that there was some precedence to that system. So we're talking about a form of medicine that's been around for a minute. And... Um, it's been refined and developed over those thousands of years. And I find that always kind of amusing because we talk about it as complementary medicine or alternative medicine. And I go, well, modern, modern med medicine, Western medicine, has only been practiced in the form that it's currently practiced for 250 years. So which is the alternative medicine, right? That's, <laughs> that's just, uh, kinda, I don't know. Something seems to be off about that picture. Um, that's a whole other conversation. But... Um, in general, what I can say about Chinese medicine is it developed out of Taoist thought. And so Taoism, right? It's another ism like Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, you know, Sufism. And any, any ism is a wasm. <laughs> so as soon as something turns into an ism, it stopped being part of the living reality that we're in right now. Um, so Taoism is also another ism. Uh, it's something that existed in the past. It's, it's a conceptual framework for reality, which is not reality as it is. That being said, um, the idea of early Taoism was that the earth is a living um, being, something that like a mod the modern scientists call a Gaia theory. Or there's one scientist in particular who's a NASA, he's an astronaut, uh, James Lovelock, who coined this term Gaia theory. And this is the idea that the Earth is a living, conscious, intelligent being. Uh, and there's a saying in Taoism, which is, man follows the Earth, the Earth follows the cosmos, the cosmos follows the Tao, and the Tao follows itself. You could insert for the word Tao, um, reality, life itself. So this idea that man follows the earth means that we must observe, we have to observe the earth. So the early Taoists um, became unbelievable, uh, incredibly meticulous observers of the natural world. And that means the movement of the four seasons, the movement of the cosmos, what we call the 28 constellations, the movement of animals, the movement of the seasons, uh, the, the movement of weather patterns, areas of dryness, wind, heat, cold, uh, moisture, etc. And they observe the animals. And so, for example, the intelligence of an animal, like if, uh, 
if an animal gets sick, we'll say, you know, a wild cat or something, the wild cat, how does it know to go and eat that one herb and to eat it, eat until it's full and then to go into a shaded protected place and basically do yoga or some version of it and bend its body like she was talking about the wholeness, the natural intelligence of the body, to get its body into some strange position and breathe in some way while this herb is working through its body and then uh, to heal. Nobody taught that wild cat. They didn't say in a textbook, this is urolensis glycerize and uh, you need to cook it for seven minutes. And, you know, or, or, or better yet, in modern uh, you know, chemical science, we need to isolate this one amino acid and then compound it into a powder and then, you know, put it in a pill. Uh, this idea of Gaia theory is that the earth is intelligent and if we observe it, we can derive principles by observing the, the function of the earth, the function of the animals, the movements of the seasons and the weather, uh, day and night, and also the larger cycles of human life, you know, seven years for men and eight years for women. Um, you know, we've, most of us have heard that every seven years we have a completely new body because all the cells have regenerated. So by observing these transformations and these movements, we develop, uh, a very robust picture of what harmony is. So the last thing I'll say about Chinese medicine is these principles from nature, uh, were derived from observing nature and the basic idea, and I know this is true in, in Ayurveda as well is if you look at any human being or any being or any situation, there's, there are aspects of it where there's deficiency and there's aspects of it where there's excess. So in the summertime, there's an excess of heat and a deficiency of cold. This is a very general explanation. Um, and then there's, there's on one spectrum, cold and hot. Uh, and then in the human body, there's the very deep interior, like the viscera and the organs, and then the ex exterior of the body, which is dealing more with the skin, the cutaneous layer, and uh, the uh, organs and structures that are more exposed to the outside world. So there's the interior and exterior. And when you combine these things, heat and cold, deficiency, excess, interior, exterior, you have a picture of yin and yang. Now... Everybody's seen this symbol that's sadly been so overused and misunderstood. <laughs> like, I mean, somebody in this room's probably got a tattoo of it, uh, which, which is uh, the Tai Chi symbol. You know, it's the circle with the uh, swerve in the middle and the two dots, which is that within yang, there is a little bit of yin. It couldn't, it couldn't be otherwise. And within yin, there's a little bit of yang. And the, this, uh, wavy line represents change or transformation. So as something reaches utmost yang, uh, it transforms into yin. In the way that if you look at a, a wheel spinning on a bike or something, at a certain speed, it looks like it stopped moving. You know, um, The same thing could be said of the chakras or anything that's spinning really. So we take these principles and we um, apply them to the functions in the human being. And the organs are associated with yin and yang and different movements. And there's a system of meridians, which is an energetic pathways throughout the body that relates to the nervous system and the vascular system. And uh, 
we have stagnation that develops in the body. Stagnation can also be in the emotions. It can be in a, a thought that we can't, that just is on repeat. Or what's that? Or a, or a song that's stuck in your head, yeah. Which is actually a lot, you know, if you meditate, you observe that, if you really go deep into meditation, you observe that we're basically thinking about the same thing in different variations. You know, the same six themes are just on repeat up there. And we think we're having original thoughts, but really we're just, um, you know, on. it's like a needle's been dropped on a record and it's just kind of spinning. Um, Meditation's a really good recipe for realizing how completely insane we all are. Uh, so, in short, um, or, or actually that was in long, but uh, <laughs> all this observation out of it, um, there developed a very robust system of treating the stagnation. And so we use these needles, very fine needles, and we manipulate points in the body to break that stagnation so that the flow can be restored the flow of energy throughout the body, also the flow of blood and body fluids. And we work with herbs that um, go to different organs in the body. Again, to, to if something's deficient, to maybe bring heat or movement, and if something's in excess, to calm it down. And, um, and we also use gua sha, which is a way of scraping the skin to bring blood to the surface. And we use cupping, which some of you probably have bruises on your back to prove that uh, over the last couple of days. And cupping is used to break up the myofascia in the body or to, to uh, stimulate the myofascia and again to bring fresh blood and energy to an area of trauma. Um, and we use massage, of course, to, uh, for the same purposes. And we use herbs and diet and uh, f different foods have different natures, uh, like Jen was saying. And actually that's, and I'll end on that, on that note, which is that um, for a lot of people eating a plant-based diet, over time, I of course am an advocate of a plant-based diet, I myself eat a plant-based diet, but um, I found, especially with type O blood types, but also other people who for a long period of time eat um, a vegan or vegetarian diet, that in Chinese medicine, there's something, a condition called blood deficiency or liver blood deficiency, where because you're not consuming blood, um, the body can stop producing it in enough quantity. And I think it's easily treated or it's easily avoided um, if we eat foods that nourish and support and build the blood. And so I'm going to tell you some of those foods now and then I'm going to stop talking. Um, okay, so some of the grains um, that are really good for blood building are uh, barley, corn, oats, um, rice, and whole wheat. Some of the vegetables that are very good, especially are dark, dark leafy greens, which I think most people in here eat quite a bit. Uh, shiitake mushrooms are very good, dandelion, celery is very good, uh, beets are a big one. I eat beets every week, um, artichoke, alfalfa sprouts, and then water, watercress, spinach, wheatgrass, but I sort of clump those in with dark leafy greens. Uh, some of the fruits that are very good for blood building are apple, apricot, avocado, avocado especially for women. Um, if you look at an avocado, it's shaped like a uterus. There, that's not... Uh, 
there's a reason for that. Most foods carry, you know, like walnuts, for example, look like the brain. They're incredibly good for brain development and for rebuilding neural pathways that have been damaged. Carrots look like an eye if you cut them and they uh, are full of beta carotene and vitamin A. They're very good for the eyes. So a lot of foods, it's called the doctrine of signatures. A lot of foods, if they resemble a body part, they're really good for that body part. Again, nature is intelligent. It is a living organism. And the earth also produces in a local area foods in that season that are good for your body for that season. That's why it's good to eat seasonal foods. Um, okay, so to finish the list of fruits, there's uh, dates, figs, longan, and mulberry. Cherries are also very good, especially for women uh, when they're going through their uh, menses, menstrual cycle. And then um, we also have aduki beans and kidney beans are very good for building blood. Uh, for nuts and seeds, almonds and black sesame, especially black sesame in the autumn. Right now is a very good time to eat a lot of black sesame. And uh, last but not least, some of the herbs that are very good for building blood are nettle and parsley. Um, that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Are there, are there different foods that you should be eating dependent on where you come from? Let's say, for example, when you were born in India, you know, some of the different types of foods that, that they should eat because they're indigenous to that one, versus, let's say, somebody who was born in Italy. Um, obviously, the foods are different. Is it, does that make a difference, or is it just we're all, you know, we're not all the same, but it's just that, in general, um, there's a lot more overlap. Because there's a lot of us, you know, we're in one place, and we're in something else, that, um, we don't have a lot of, so we don't have fresh fruits sometimes. Um, there's not tons of fresh fruit in Montreal, you're around? Well, it's important. <laughs> it's all important. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. And it's like for people who come from a warm you know, my husband's Greek and I'm Lebanese, we live in a place that is not at all like the climate's completely different from where we're originally from back when our parents and grandparents came. Does that affect? Can you repeat the question on the mic too? Sure. So the question was, does it matter where you come from, which foods you should be eating? And, um, and the answer is yes and no. There, I, there, I have a couple things to say, and I'm sure there's a lot. But I'd love for you to jump in. But one is that we have a genetic lineage, and that I almost see it like there's a karmic flow and responsibility, like there's a trajectory that's happening where from this lineage of our family we call genetics. And part of that will determine what is good for, our, for us personally. But that's only part of the story. And that a big part of the story is what environment are you living in right now? And that you are imbibing those gunas, those attributes from your outside environment and making them your inside. And that we, we need to recognize and harmonize those things. So if you're in a cold climate, you're going to really thrive on those foods that are thriving in a cold climate. But you have this genetic history too. And you need to respect both. And how do you know? You know what feels good and to follow that.
So that's an oversimplified answer. What do you think? Totally, but but I had a I had a patient. She was uh, she came from India and she was uh, she grew up vegan, and she ca she married a, a German doctor and she came to to Germany. She came to my my office and and she expressed a lot of since she it's about 20 years now that she's in Germany, but she is not good and she's got a lot of issues. And while talking, we came to this point, and now she is not vegan anymore because she, her husband isn't. And then I say, yeah, but uh, what happens when you go back to visit your family? And she said, yeah, yeah, I'm always better. And I said, yes, so <laughs> you could. But she, all, since 20 years, she is in Germany, but she still hasn't really adapted to and she said yeah because there is a lot of spices you don't get what apparently her body needs you know so there yeah so this is the part of um, but maybe with another genetics she could totally be fine but but she really ex she had a lot of health problem in not respecting her what's good for her yeah um Yes to all that. I also think that um, maybe the most universal characteristic that humans share is our capacity for adaptation. And we um, are such extraordinarily resilient and adaptable beings. Um, and so our ability to even, you know, we all have a constitutional makeup, right? But our ability to change, even at the level of constitution, I think is fundamental to what it means to be human. Um, again, I'm less sort of concerned with um, individual constitutional needs. I think it's important. But I, also, I think equally important is being in harmony with nature in the environment that you're in, right? So, and one of the ways to do that is through diet, definitely, and even the types of exercises that you're doing in different seasons and different types of movement. Uh, you know, so, so for example, right now we're in the autumn, right? We're just at the beginning of the autumn, and all of the heat from the summer is transforming. You know, what does heat do? If it's, if it's hot out and the sidewalk's very hot and you drop some water on it, it evaporates, right? Heat is a drying agent. So all the heat from the summer has created dryness in the autumn. And when things are dry, like if you go out to, I've never been there, but like South Dakota, I don't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, if, you go, if you go to South Dakota, where I believe it's very flat, um, from what I've been told, because I talk about South Dakota so often, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of wind, right? Or you go to deserts or places that are very flat. Um, there's a lot of heat and there's a lot of wind. And so when you have this dryness and heat in the autumn, you also have a lot of wind. And so those atmospheric qualities influence our, our health quite a bit. So there are foods that you can eat to address those two things and keep you in balance with nature. For example, foods that nourish the body fluids, uh, like Asian pears or any kind of pears, uh, daikon, radish, uh, 
uh, cucumbers, things like that, but also herbs that bring heat to the body to keep you warm as you go into the wintertime, uh, like ginger, garlic, chili peppers, onions, the pungent vegetables. Um, they keep that, that agni, that fire alive. Uh, so this idea of nourishing the fluids because it's dry, but also bringing heat to the body so that you can transition into winter, cooking food for longer periods of times, eating hearty stews and seasonal vegetables. If you were to eat that way for the autumn and then eat winter, foods appropriate to the winter time in the spring and the summer, um, while observing the unique characteristics of the place, so in Quebec, for example, um, then you're staying in harmony with nature. And the extent to which we're in harmony with nature, in a lot of ways, is the extent to which we're healthy. So, um, so that's my my personal opinion. There are other people, like I think Weston Price and uh, others, who he did the China study, and um, I don't know maybe that wasn't Weston Price. I'm not sure who it was, but who have gone around and studied uh, the teeth of different people and different cultures, and found that different dietary needs are based partially on the environment and the the genetic makeup of a person so you know if you took an inuit eskimo who live on like whale blubber and i'm just making this up but uh they live on a predominantly meat and fat diet um and you drop them in los angeles and said you're going vegan raw vegan uh, they would have some significant health problems, but over time they'd be able to adjust to it is the idea. And so I think we can all adjust to different diets, but we have to also consider where we're at uh, personally. So. Any other questions? How is, um, <clears throat> with the changing of the seasons, and this, um, how is it backward? Do we, do we know how our ancestors, like when we were the hunters, they must have had periods, especially in between seasons, when, when they pretty much were, were fasting. I mean, apart from what they had, you know, stored up on, they must have... Is that something that benefits our bodies? Like you were saying, how, how we're affected by sort of the change of the season. Is that something that <coughs> is something to actually take into consideration and maybe, like, not be scared of... That will, that will help our, our systems to sort of in between seasons do a bit of fasting? Is that anything that is ever... Repeat the question now. So there was a question about um, is fasting beneficial? Yeah, and with the changing of the season, you said that we could easily get a bit, if I understood you before, our systems could react a bit to the change of the seasons. Yeah, because our body is changing with the change of the season. Would it be helpful in mitigating that transition with some fasting? And in Ayurveda, we have a a tradition of having our cleansing time be the the transition time. So fall and spring are the main times that we do our cleansing. And that does include some fasting, but that there's no one thing that's good for all people. So it really depends on, do you have excess? I might have meant cleansing, so that's a better And yeah, and sometimes in, in the Vedic tradition, uh, fasting is a very loose term, which can mean I'm only eating after sundown, which in my mind, that's not fasting, you're eating, but it's only the time of day, or it's only with one type of food, like only fruits, or it's only this, or it's only that. So there's many different types of fasting, and that cleansing during those times is recommended, and fasting is really dependent on 
what's happening with you right now. So I wouldn't say everyone should go out and do it every fall, but to look at, is there excess? Do you have toxins? One way to know if you have toxins in your GI tract is the coating on your tongue. So if you look at your tongue um, on a regular basis, especially if you're having some digestive issues, if you have a white, yellow, brown, black, it's amazing how many colors you can get on your tongue. And it's not something that's because of what you just ate, but it's there in the morning, first thing in the morning when you wake up. Then it means that you're not fully digesting your food. You're not as optimally using, your acne is not at its optimal point. That would be a, a time to consider doing a cleanse. And those in-between seasons, fall and spring, are the recommended times. But then there's several different Yes, many different ways to do cleansing, so I do recommend that you get some guidance on how for you. Yeah, definitely the best cleanses are customized to your own constitution and health conditions and that kind of thing. Because for one person, a juice cleanse for a week would... Um, could really wipe out their digestive system and be incredibly enervating and leave them really weak and depleted. Whereas for another person, it could be extremely supportive, right? So that I think cleansing in particular is a good thing to work with somebody on. Uh, and also I remember reading about something about in India, um, them they're for early encounters with Europeans or the, the white barbarians. Um, and how, a lot of, I mean, I imagine when they arrived on ships, they probably looked like a pretty motley crew. Uh, but that because the white Europeans did not do any form of cleansing and their eating was more determined by uh, preference and taste than it was necessarily by what's healthy or more supportive, um, that they were considered really um, kind of uncouth and unclean in some ways, I think. And which is amusing in a sense because I'm sure a lot of the Europeans looked at maybe Indian cities and thought that they were they were unclean or un, unkempt people or something and and uh, you know it says something about the cleanliness really the our internal environment is uh, maybe more important if you want to talk in those terms of clean versus unclean than than our external environment so we got a question over here. Thank you, guys. Um, you touched on what you can learn uh, from taking a look at somebody's tongue and extrapolating from what you observed there to make predictions about you know, how people should make adjustments to their diet and lifestyle, etc. Uh, in Chinese medicine, there's also this tradition of pulse reading. Um, so I'm interested in, I'm wondering if you could explain what that tradition is about, what it entails, and <clears throat> what that practice allows you to learn about somebody's health and, you know, and, and, and then provide recommendation. That also exists in Ayurvedic. Do you want, maybe we can, we can both touch on it and then uh, and you, you want to we'll see which the one question. is better. Let's compete. Yeah, let's compete. Okay. <laughs> so the, the question was... Um, yeah, the question was... Uh, in the history of Chinese and Ayurvedic medicine, there is uh, a diagnostic method of taking one's pulse. And what can we determine by that? And can we say a little bit about uh, why we do that? 
And what the difference is between the way that you guys read a pulse versus just going to the doctor and they take your pulse and tell you a number. Wow. Yeah. So there's a, a big difference between how a Western practitioner will read pulse. They will look for quite a number of things, but the main thing that they're looking for is the beats per minute. So you're looking at the rate of the heart through the pulse. That's the main thing. They can also look at um, a few other things, but I don't know that they use it as a diagnostic tool except for that one. Um, in Ayurveda, there are countless number of things that can be looked for in a pulse. We have in a, so many, there's probably infinite numbers of systems. It's recommended that when you find a teacher who's teaching pulse and you trust them, you should stay with them until you master the pulse and not learn from anyone else because there are so many different varieties of ways of learning pulse. So I can only talk about my teacher's way where there's seven different levels. Base level is looking at the baseline constitution at birth so we can feel that embryo imprint that you were at the moment of birth and that ratio of energies, vata, pitta, kapha, that you were. And then the top, most superficial level, is what imbalance is happening right now. And that if those two are different, then there's some work to be done to gain more perfect balance. But that's only scratching the surface. We can feel the strength, the depletion, the um, overactivity, stagnation um, of every organ in the body. We can feel emotional states. We can feel the movement of the vayus, which is vata, the type of energy in the body. We can feel, um, in addition, we feel the 20 gunas, or the attributes that I was talking about that are in the outside environment that we imbibe and are in making up our inner environment. We can feel all those in the pulse as well. So I can feel, oh, you feel a little dry. You feel a little slimy. You feel a little dense. Um, and these things all, we add up to, um, to a lot of different conclusions. But it's an interesting art and science. You don't have to believe in it to learn it. You can actually feel, okay, this finger is mostly vata, this one pitta, this one kapha. You put it on the pulse. Which one is strongest? Great, I'm feeling mostly pitta. It can be very straightforward like that. But as you get deeper into the artistry of it, it's like I'm describing everyone as a river, and I feel like I jump into the river when I'm feeling the pulse, and I can go and actually get lost in that river. And we can feel things like astrology. We can feel things like really anything that we look for, we can eventually find. And what my job is to follow your river, to show me where there are eddies, where the things aren't flowing as well as they could. So that's where we can work. And that really, um, it's revealing to me, I don't need to go searching and invading in order to get this information. I rest as a listener, and what's really important comes forward to me. And from that, I've had all kinds of experiences like, I'm just going to need to say this. I have apple trees, applesauce. I keep getting applesauce. You, your pulse feels like applesauce. Does that mean anything to you? And she's like, oh my gosh, I grew up on an apple farm and we had applesauce at every meal. And it's like, I am made of applesauce. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of how you feel. <laughs> so it's a profound science and art that really anything you look for, you could find. And it's one of the most um, important diagnostic tools that we have. Whoa.
Um, so there's, I, I hear a lot of similarities and, and definitely some differences as well between the Ayurvedic approach to pulse and the Chinese. Um, again, I think both of them are looking f to understand what's going on in the organs and a, the general schema of a person's health. Um, <clears throat> so in Chinese medicine, you're, you're reading the patency and movement of blood in the radial artery. Um, and on the left hand, we look at the blood organs. So liver, gallbladder, uh, the heart and the small intestines and the left kidney. And on the right hand, you're looking at what we call the chi organs, which, um, they're the organs that are overseeing the production of, well, biomedically speaking, we'll say ATP, but that's really not, that correlation falls apart in some places. Uh, but the organs of the spleen and stomach and the lungs and large intestine and the right kidney. And there's three levels of depth from the very superficial, right at the surf, right at the skin level, and then a mid-depth and then much deeper into the body. And that's going from the surface of the body deeper into the body. And at th all three levels, um, you're looking for different qualities in the pulse. So there are 28 uh, base pulses, we'll say. For example, one would be called wiry. Wiry is described like on a guitar string. If you if you took your finger and you pressed down on a guitar string, that kind of um, sensation of it being complete across the finger and also uh, kind of snapping, the way that if a, if a wire snapped up and hit your finger, that's a wiry pulse, and that tells us something about what we call stagnation in the body and the state of the, the liver in particular. Another pulse will be described as, say, wiry, or, or I just said that, uh, as, as rolling, and that's described in the classic texts as like a pearl uh, that's inside a tube and is moving slowly through the tube. So the, so the blood is rising and then it's, it's like it's rolling through a small tube and you'll fe you're, fe you're feeling that texture. To arrive at distinguishing these 28 pulses, and actually there's upwards of 100 pulses, at these different levels in this incredible level of, uh, of detail, there's no substitute for taking thousands and thousands and thousands of pulses until you find one and go, okay, that's what a, what a tight rolling pulse looks like. And then you ask your teacher who's been doing it for 30 years and they go, you're just so far off the mark. It's incredible. <laughs> and, uh, and then you just keep doing it over and over and over again. And it, and it builds over time, but it's a real art. And, uh, some of the real masters I've seen, you know, they'll say things like she was talking about applesauce, but that also, uh, you know, I've seen master pulse takers say things like your grandmother on your dad's side had diabetes. And the person's like, what are you doing right now? And, and they're picking up on things in subtle levels of the pulse or, or you broke your leg. You had a bad tra traumatic break to your leg, you know, when you were young, didn't you? Or, you know, th there's things that are coming to them that they're finding in the pulse that have to do with an incredible level of uh, listening and subtlety. And um, I think it's a, a practice that takes many, many years to become very proficient in. Um, but when done well, can be a very helpful diagnostic tool. Because the body doesn't lie. You can ask a person all sorts of... Every patient that's come to me is like, 
Yes, I'm vegetarian. I've actually never drank or smoked a cigarette, and uh, I run five miles a day and drink exactly three gallons of water. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> My relationships are in perfect harmony. I've never lied. I have no addictions, and I'm really happy. And I'm like, I don't want to hear that. I'd rather hear, you know. So we uh, we can bullshit a lot, but the body doesn't. And so getting proficient in reading tongue and pulse and uh, in in clue, uh, cues like observing the skin color and the eyes and all these things uh, can oftentimes tell us more than the person will actually tell us. So. I'd like to add a story. Um, my teacher, Dr. Vasant Ladd, is master at pulse. And... He um, he's not that great at teaching the advanced part. Whenever we asked, how'd you get that? He's like, it is so. <laughs> Which is true and beautiful, just not that helpful when you're like, but how do I get there? He had this, there was a patient that was willing to be seen in front of our class. And after taking their pulse, well, the reason that they came in, they had an injury to their leg that just wasn't healing after years. So had a knee injury, and then five years later was still recovering from it when phys physically it didn't seem there was anything wrong with it. So they had come in to do panchakarma, which is our main cleansing technique, and took the pulse in front of the class and said, do you have swords in your home? And they said, yeah, I actually collect swords. How did you know? And, and do you have two swords in particular pointed downward? Yes. Over your stairs? What? Yes. That's exactly where I fell down the stairs and received my injury. He said, you remove those swords, your knee will heal. <laughs> like, that's not the pulse. <laughs> They don't teach that stuff in school, though. <laughs> but time after time, we're blown away by what he's experiencing, the level of listening that he's achieving through taking the pulse. Yeah. <laughs> Just um, supplementation, vitamins, minerals. What's your take on that if you are following plant-based vegan, you know, the that sort of path for both, depending on geographically where you're living, yeah, if you're okay. a European country where you don't see much sunlight versus a sunny country, and also age, and maybe even gender. If you're a five-year-old or if you're a 40-year-old, what's your take? Do, do, do we need it, or can we survive with just the food we're eating? So the question is, what is our take on supplementation um, in regards to age and gender, and can we really get what we need from our diet, or do we need supplementation? And I think in an ideal world, I would love to get everything that I need through my diet. And the reality is that our topsoil is depleted, and our farming practices are imperfect, and there's a lot of stress in our environment. And um, we have some separation from our nature and where we're getting our food. And all of those things combined leads to not getting the optimal nutrition that we would if we were eating fully wild crafted plants. 
So I think because of that, there are times when supplementation is extremely helpful. One of those times in my practice that I recommend it when I don't generally use supplements is around pregnancy. Um, iron, calcium, magnesium, um, omegas, like a lot of different things that the body needs in our, it's a stressful time for building another body out of a body, right? Um, also, as we get older, our Agni becomes less efficient. And it, no matter how optimally we've treated it and how healthy we are, like our ability to transform one thing to another starts to, to diminish. And in those times, it might be helpful. I found that simplifying is usually easier for a, an impaired Agni rather than adding more things. So simplifying, like taking away anything that's getting in the way of proper um, assimilation and absorption is the first thing before I would give extra things because that actually taxes, it's like putting more wet logs on the fire if you put too many things in. So for older, then it's a, a balance between these, these factors. Um, there's one other thing I was gonna say. Oh, right. There's something going on around the D vitamins and that every person that I know that has been to a doctor comes to me and says, I'm D deficient, even though we're in California. I'm like, how is that possible? I don't know what's going on. If there, there's a problem with the testing devices or it's a conspiracy to sell more D vitamins, but, um, oh, right. So I feel experiments, if you feel better with it, it's good for you. I really feel like trust your body, trust your being um, navigating these things. I would prefer not to use supplements if I, could, if I could get it in my food, but if I can't, if I feel like I'm lacking, I'll experiment and let my body tell me what's working, what's not. The quality of those supplements is also really important. Is it easily digestible? Is it something that your body recognizes as food or is it completely synthetic? I wouldn't recommend anything like that. For the D's example, I, I don't, I don't. Rainbow Light is a prenatal vitamin that I, company that I do recommend. Floridex is a iron supplement that I like to use with my pregnant clients. And B12 is something that a lot of people with, um, that have changed to plant-based diet are not getting enough of. And I would say first start with brewer's yeast and leafy greens and do as much as you can. And if really you feel like energy is, is lacking, experiment. I actually love getting B12 injections. I feel so much better. And I think if you have a high stress level in your, in your world, in your life, that that's gonna use up your bees faster. So it's even harder to keep on top of that and supplementation could be really helpful. It's personal. Um, can I respond to that quickly and then? <clears throat> uh, I think, I also think less is more. You know, there's one school of thought that says that uh, supplements are macro macromolecules and so we're not really absorbing much of what we're taking to begin with. Um, I tend to think that's true. I mean, I know when I've been on supplement um, protocols in this experimentary lab, I call a human body, um, you know, and I'm peeing like radioactive yellow, I'm like, I'm pretty sure my body's not absorbing anything that I'm, <laughs> that I'm actually taking. Uh, 
And I think if somebody's digestion is already taxed, taking these very condensed uh, isolates is maybe not so helpful. Um, the vitamin D thing seems to also be coming up a lot, but I think that uh, I'd rather tell somebody to eat a lot of shiitake mushrooms, you know, like, um, especially people as they get older and they have like osteoporosis, osteomalacia, bone-related issues, um, mushrooms are very good. Instead of taking supplementation, I prefer get it from food if possible. I think another really big and obvious one is the quality of the water you're drinking. You know, probably the most significant contributor to um, to senescence, you know, to aging, is uh, dehydration. And there's a great website called findaspring.com, and you can find natural spring water in a lot of parts of the world where a lot of those vital coenzymes and cofactors are still intact. Um, I'd rather get my minerals from the water I'm drinking than from supplements or something. Um, I, I do think B12 is important if you're vegetarian for a long time. Um, you know, or like people take like, there's a good side, maybe a downside of, of supplements, right? Like, so somebody takes extra calcium because they think they need it for bone health, but the body can pretty quickly develop uh, excess calcium, which then forms calcium phosphate bonds, and then you have chronic inflammation, right? So my tendency is if you feel pretty good, you know, take a little B12, eat an incredibly healthy diet without being crazy and dogmatic because that's illness up here in the, the old noggin. And, uh, and if you find that you really have a health condition or you're, you know, you can feel things are out of whack, then maybe see, see a practitioner. And that pretty much goes for any age group, you would say. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Again, and the, the last thing I'll say, um, I also feel, you know, I'm obviously an advocate of drinking tea over other forms of caffeine or stimulants or things. Um, good old growth tea, not like, not like bagged tea that you buy, commercial plantation tea, has the roots grow uh, proportionate to the size of the canopy. So a full-size tree can have roots that go down 150 meters, and so they're drying up trace minerals that uh, we're not getting in our diet. Um, so I think drinking tea is a good way to do it with fresh mineral water, or fresh spring water. Um, we had one question back there first. Yeah, I was just curious what your thoughts are on the role of Western and Eastern medicine, and you know if there's a balance or the ideal spaces that they, they work together or that one is sort of superior to. What do you mean with Western medicine? Like is there, do you see that a, a role for Western medicine also in your practice at all or is there a real separation between Eastern and Western uh, medicine practice? Um, Can you repeat the question first? Yeah, so the question was if, um, if the, the role of the, if I got it right, the role of the Western medicine, um, like classical, academical, school medicine, this is what you're talking about? Yes, if it's of importance in our work or in the, in the practice. So, um, um, for my work, not, it's not. But 
I mean, the Western medicine and everything w what comes with it, you know, the surgeon possibilities, the medication, the urchins medications we have, they're totally necessary. I mean, because, you know, if you, if you have an accident, you really, <laughs> you really need somebody who is fixing this for, for you. So there, for me, I'm talking for me, I, I do have a lot, a lot of respect also of the, diagnostic possibility of the Western medicine. So this is something we really, really could use, you know, just to get quickly a picture if there is something uh, happening and what is happening. And in any case of urgency, it's totally you need it. And if you, if, and I mean, we just can be happy that we have antibiotics. We have to, because nobody wants to die of something, you know, you don't have to right now. So this is totally the place and the importance for the for for Western med medicine. So what I think, because I sure with my treatment I can't help somebody, you know, after a car accident and broken legs. So this is totally important and necessary. But um, and I I work, you know, in in my practice I, I got a lot of uh, patients sent from. Western medicine, dentists, uh, pediatrics, you know, and they're totally starting in a part, not everybody, to cooperate, you know, to get to say, okay, we can do the diagnostic, we can see, we can fix whatever, or, you know, and they're already started to, to work with a lot of homeopathy also, especially in the pediatrics. And if there is something going further, they, they send people to have a look at, you know, when you have to get this kind of holistic view on it. So, I don't know if this is kind of the answer you, yeah? Any thoughts on, I mean, how do you navigate that as a prospective patient, you know, to decide if you're... It's difficult, you know, it's, for example, with the mothers, when I, this is what maybe it's, it's, I really, I think it's important to say that we have really to trust ourselves and our good just human sense and our in, in, intuition you know to to know what to do because the problem of the western medicine is that they took totally away the ability the responsibility from us they they, they really depossessed us from the capacity of doing what he told animals are doing. I mean, you would never have the idea to go to a dog to tell him how to get his babies or how to treat them. We do that. We are telling the mothers, yeah, you have to feed it all the three hours and yeah, and don't take him to your bed and you know, all these things. This is crazy. We, we really have to trust, you know, to, to, what, to, to keep our good senses. You know, to see, yeah, this is, this is here, I need a medication. Here, I need a surgery. That's good sense. Or here, yeah, there is a baby. I really have to respect a kind of rhythm because, but, you know, it's, it's really, really important for, the, this is what I tell the patients because they come to see me with their babies and I say, yeah, but the pediatric said I have to do like that and have to do like that. And, you know, and this is always the kind of difficult part, you know. But then I always bring back it to what is your, what are your guts telling you? To leave this baby there and to let it cry and instead of taking it to your bed? Afraid of you're not getting free again until he's 18? Yeah, so what? I mean, we're, 
here all the time, the whole life after we try to get these babies in their bed and to sleep alone in a room and after we are taking a lifetime to find somebody else to share our bed with us. This is totally absurd. This is what I, yeah. It's what I tell the mothers, you know, say, no, there's no, take it, take it, it's, 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 it's still you, it's still in a hole. Yeah. Um, I think we have to end here in just a moment, but my, I just wanted to say something about that because my brother is a Western doctor, and uh, so this dialogue is very alive and present <clears throat> in our house or in our family, and... Things are starting to change slowly. Um, in China, if you go to in Shanghai, Beijing, some of the big cities, when you go into the hospital, the initial diagnostic intake, they'll determine can this be treated with herbs and acupuncture and needles and cupping and all that, um, or does it require drug therapy or surgery? And But they're both wings in the same hospital. And so if an orthopedic surgeon uh, you know, does a surgical operation, afterwards the patient will then go to get liniments with uh, Chinese herbs and take herbs internally to help the bones heal properly and so that there's minimal scarification. And, and so they're working in synergy and, they're, and there's this, a syncretic um, dynamic relationship there that's really profound because the doctor, the Western doctors are also extremely respectful of the Chinese doctors. You know, it's not those those California complimentary care providers who are, you know, just working on the astral planes or something. Like, they really profoundly respect Chinese doctors and they realize that the education's as robust and, and uh, long-winded. Uh, but <clears throat> they also, it goes both ways. The Chinese doctors also respect the incredible I mean, technologically speaking, we've developed things that are so far beyond what we could have imagined 100 years ago. The level of detail that we can um, look at, you know, with CAT scans and x-rays and, and MRIs and things, what we can see about what's happening in the human body is unbelievable, you know, ultrasounds and things like this. So, and those diagnostic tools, if related to properly, not dependent on alone, can profoundly aid somebody else practicing, you know, if a patient comes in and they've got a, um, a physical injury or something, if I can look at its, uh, at radiological reports, that can just help me inform my treatment, you know? Um, and so part of the dialogue between my, my brother and I is a lot how, how can we address the larger context, which is a societal issue of polarization, you know? And I think that's happening right now because it's getting to an extreme that systems are gonna start to collapse. Uh, you know, that is reflected so obviously in the current presidential race, <laughs> where we're only giving, you only have two choices, folks, all right? If you're thinking outside of one of these boxes, you've lost your mind. Um, and, you know, I was joking around with somebody last night saying, like, there's part of me that's kind of like, I really hope Trump gets elected, causes, like, total meltdown of all systems so that we can start from scratch, which that's the anarchist in me. But, um, you know, I, I obviously would not uh, promote any, any form of collapse that would cause that level of human suffering. But the point is that a polarized view of reality is not a way forward. And... Uh, developing a philosophy that's both and instead of either or 
Um, I think it can apply to all areas, all disciplines, and especially uh, benefit medicine and the way forward with medicine. So, and luckily now that we have you know quantum physicists who are starting to sound a whole lot like ancient, um, you know, Vedic mystics and magicians. So you're saying we can exist at two places at once? That doesn't make any sense, you know. Uh, I think science is starting to open up and we're starting to pop the top off the limitations of uh, purely reductionist uh, thinking. So. so I'd just like to add quickly that I think all systems of medicine have incredible strengths and all have limitations. And that when we recognize what our own limitations are, it would be so much easier to work together. And I really pray that that's the way that we're moving. It, it seems that we are. Things are changing a lot. And um, I look forward to the day when it's, it's all working together. And that in the US, you'll find Chinese practitioners with a Western doctor surgeon next door in the same building. And Ayurvedic practitioners. And an Ayurvedic. And, and osteopathy. osteopathy. <laughs> all of us. <laughs> I'm an orthopedic surgeon for those that, that don't know, but so I have the, the other side if you want. And there is no doubt that I'm, I'm totally at the same place you are, that there's one little detail, and it's, I don't know if I'll be able to explain it, but in order to become a doctor and stay a doctor as a physician, you have to prove, prove yourself all the time, okay? You have to... There's like people checking that what we're doing is accurate and what we're doing is in sync with what we should be doing, okay? I don't know if that's clear to everybody, but if, I, if I'm a surgeon and I cut people up and I do it all wrong, someone's going to pick it up and say, she's not doing a good job, you know, and she shouldn't be doing surgery. So we'll do something about that. So in French, le collège des médecins. So I don't know if someone can help me, but there's this organism, I mean, there's people checking that we're doing our job properly. In that sense, for us anyway, I don't know, you can tell Aneta what your point of view is. There's no doubt there's a role for everything that you are doing and people have different needs and the, the Western medicine doesn't answer to all of that, for sure, there's, there's no doubt. But then with time or I've seen different people and some people pretending they're something they're not and there doesn't seem to be people checking that all these different uh, doctors of all sorts are, are, are doing what they're supposed to be doing. I have no doubt you are competent in what you're doing and I'm, I'm here to, to consult with you so I trust them. But, how am I to know the next one or the next one? So do you, do you see what I'm getting at or it's not? Yeah, I, th okay. I think that's a really good point. That's, that may you, have been an for, obstacle. Yeah, that's, thank my you. Point. I, I, that's definitely an obstacle. And I would say that um, a mediocre practitioner of, say, Chinese medicine or Ayurveda can be really mediocre, meaning irresponsible. And a mediocre or we'll say lesser developed uh, Western doctor who's been through the Western medical system and the incredible rigor that's required of that um, is still going to have a certain degree of proficiency and knowledge and foundation just to, be, to, uh, to have that title really 
that is um, worthy, that deems respect, I think. And, and because the, the system of checks and balances in Western medicine is so well-developed, the standardization of the medicine is so well-developed, we've talked a lot about that being a limiting factor, but this is the other side of it, which is that it creates a baseline for the practice of Western medicine that you can rely on it in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, with Chinese medicine, luckily, the reason it's been able to spread around the world is they, they're, they've been able to standardize the medicine quite a bit. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there's the same degree of checks and balances. You know, I get out of school and I can just start practicing. I don't need a mentor or years and years of residency after my clinical hours are complete of somebody looking over my shoulder, making sure what I'm doing is good. The other side of that is the, the modalities of Chinese medicine generally don't run the same risks of um, potential side effects, you know. My using acupuncture needles does not present this, pose the same risks as doing a heavy surgery or a kidney transplant or something. So, um, so again, this is where the dialogue is very dynamic, and there are lots of areas where hopefully we'll continue to have a, a robust conversation about it and develop a, a more um, synthesized medicine. Are we out of time? All right, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Again, apologies for the audio quality. We did the best we could. Uh, Jason worked very hard in trying to mix everything to try to get the best version of what we had. But, you know, it is what it is. But that being said, I thought it was full of all kinds of gems and pearls uh, that hopefully expanded your horizons on this field of health and healing and medicine. Uh, if you would like to support the show, and thank you so much for doing so for those that have, uh, there are many, many ways, but perhaps the single most powerful way is just to subscribe. It's totally free. That's all I'm asking you to do. So if you haven't done so already, please click that subscribe button on iTunes uh, or on whatever app you use to consume podcast content, and I greatly appreciate it. I also appreciate everybody who has shared the show with your friends and on social media. Uh, I appreciate everybody who has left a review on iTunes. And also, with the holidays upon us, you're probably going to be buying gifts on Amazon, if that's the case. It would mean a lot to us. If you click through the Amazon banner at richroll.com, you can find that on any episode page uh, before making your purchase. And then we get commission. We get a little credit on every purchase that you make. It doesn't cost you a single cent extra, but Amazon kicks us some commission change, and that really does support us tremendously. So we really, really appreciate that very much, everybody who's made a habit of that. So maybe just plant that little seed in your brain next time you're going on Amazon to buy a gift. Uh, if you'd like to receive a short weekly email from me, it's called Roll Call. Basically five or six really brief tips, tools, resources, books I'm reading, uh, documentaries I came across, a YouTube video I thought was cool, just stuff that's kind of on my brain that I feel like sharing. So that's it. No spam. Uh, this is stuff I'm not putting on my website, on my blog, or anything like that. So if you want in on it, uh, you can subscribe on my site as well. Uh, also, richroll.com for signed copies of Finding Ultra and Plant Power Way and our t-shirts and all that cool stuff. That's it. Big love to Jason Camiola for audio engineering and production on today's show, Sean Patterson for graphics, Chris Swan for additional production assistance and help with the show notes, theme music by Analemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here in a couple days. Peace. Plants. <laughs> <laughs>